Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. And if you'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word, as it comes to us from Joshua chapter 10 in your bulletin tonight, it says Joshua chapter 15. That is a typo. We are in chapter 10 tonight. And that most likely is an error on my part and not of our wonderful and excellent secretary. Denise, so I will take that blame. Let's begin reading tonight in Joshua chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makedah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have, found, uh, are, have been found hidden in the cave at Makedah. And Joshua said, Roll a large stone against the mouth of the cave, and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua and the camp at Machedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. When they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone out with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. They came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For, the lust, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Afterwards Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the tree until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded. They took them down from the tree and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. They set a large stone against the mouth of the cave remains to this day. As for Makedah, Joshua captured it on the day and struck it and its kings with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the king of Makedah just as he had done to the king of Jericho. And then you see in the next five paragraphs here of how they go to each of these cities and conquer each one that rep- were represented by these five kings. Let's skip down to verse 40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev, and the lowland and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them down from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Please be seated. 
On Christmas Day 1989, the Romanian dictator Nicolae Ceausescu, along with his wife, were executed by a firing squad after a f- short trial, ending over 20 years of communism and of his dictatorship there in that country of Romania. And if you remember that time, Ceausescu ruled with a heavy hand. He imprisoned any opponents or even those that were critical to him, killing tens of thousands of people, oftentimes mass genocide of his very own people that he ruled over. And as he did so, he would seize more and more power while the country as a whole became poorer and poorer until not even those directly under him could stand it anymore. And they overthrew this brutal and evil man. And as a result, he was executed. I bring that up because as a young boy, I remember that event well. Not because I was attuned to international affairs as a nine-year-old, but because one of my best friends at that time was Romanian. He and his parents fled Romania when this young friend of mine was very young. And they had found refuge in exile here in America. And I remember even to this day, tears coming down the face of my friend's mother when the news of this evil dictator came across. The news that he had been removed and had been killed. No doubt these were tears of joy and of happiness and assurance, but I'm sure they were also tears of anger and frustration. This man was the direct cause for them having to leave their homes, a place that they grew up, leaving everything behind. Friends, property, family members. Their lives were threatened to the degree that they had to leave it all and go. And I don't think we can fully imagine that reality because we live in such relative peace and security here in the United States. But I remember there was no sadness with this man's death. Instead, there was celebration. There was celebration here, there was celebration especially in the streets of Romania because one of the great enemies of society had been removed And that left, as a young boy, an indelible impression upon me. As we come to this passage tonight, perhaps you were quite appalled when we were reading it. Surely these types of passages are the passages that are criticized by skeptics and critics of those that oppose the Bible and even the God of the Bible. They look at these situations and see what they see as brutality. In blood. But that is because they are so far removed from this actual situation of when it took place. Much like those that had no personal contact with those that lived in such a dictatorship in the 60s and 70s and 80s in Romania. If you had no personal contact with such people, then you wouldn't understand the personal impact that 
these type of leaders, these type of people had upon lives. But if you did, then you would see that this was not a bad thing. This was a good thing. This was a bringing about of justice. That these five kings of Canaan were brought to justice. This is God establishing his rule in the world. And justice being rendered. And as we'll see tonight, we are called to a similar battle. Obviously not to physical arms, but surely to spiritual ones. To spiritual enemies that the Lord calls us to defeat and slay down. And so we'll see that tonight in three points. Christ the conqueror. Second, taking up arms. And three, comfort and hope in conflict. First of all, though, Christ the conqueror. Last week we saw how these five kings had formed an alliance and they had encamped against Gibeon. If you remember in chapter 9, the Gibeonites were those that had deceived the Israelites, saying that they were from a faraway country. They dressed as if they had come on a long journey. But the reality is that they were just a close neighbor nearby. And Joshua and the Israelites foolishly, without consulting God, made a covenant, made a pact with these Gibeonites, only to find out later that they had been deceived. But as we saw last week and the week before, that they they kept this covenant with them. Because this covenant was made in the name of God, and so as not to bring dishonor upon God and upon his people, the Israelites, they upheld their end of the bargain. And as we saw last week, this is quickly tested because these kings come up to wage war against the Gibeonites, seeing them now as traitors and enemies. And so Joshua, again, upholding his word, being a man of Psalm 15.5 status, keeping one's word even to his own hurt. Joshua marches himself and the troops through the night to defend the Gibeonites. And what we see is not only that they defend the Gibeonites, but they conquer these enemies. As we read in verse 10, a few passages, a few verses before our passage tonight, we see that they were thrown into such a panic as Israel came upon them quickly. These five kings and their armies were not bartering for this. They'd come to attack Gibeon, but now the Israelites had come upon them so quickly. And as a result, they are conquered. It demonstrates something of the nature of their defeat and the reason why they were. That these, again, were not innocent men, passive bystanders. No, these were armies that were waging war, that these kings and their armies were not people of peace. And so we understand a little bit of their wickedness. And we even know from the rest of the scriptures of their wicked practices that they were engaged in. So there is no sympathy that is needed here. These men coming under attack and being killed would be the likes of Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, or even perhaps Osama bin Laden. 
being brought to justice. And when you put it in that kind of context, I don't think there's anyone that had mercy or compassion for any of those men. Nobody would say, oh, those poor men, they did not deserve that. I think everybody would say, no, they deserve that and so much more. And so we read that these mighty kings, these mighty men of war, become so fearful and afraid that they flee and they hide. And they hide in a cave. Conveniently, they all hide in the same cave. As we read here in verse 17, as this report comes to Joshua. And so in verse 18, Joshua tells them to roll a large stone in front of the entrance and continue to fight. Essentially saying we will deal with them when we come back, when this present battle is done. And then we go on to read that they do come back and take these kings out. And Joshua brings them out and does something very symbolic. He puts them on the ground. And he and the leaders put their feet on their necks. And we'll talk about what that symbolizes in just a moment. But think for a minute the utter change of events. How quickly the scene has changed for these five men. That these five men were five kings of the five biggest cities in southern Canaan. No doubt they are the five most important people in all of the land. Just a day before, if they said something, whatever they said would be immediately done. If they said jump, their people would say how high. They had complete power and control. And yet we see here, as we read in Romans chapter 13, That all power, all authority comes from God, is derived from God, who gives it to all. Therefore, all those in authority have to give an account for what they will do with such power and such authority. And if they use that power and authority in a reckless way, in a way that does not honor God, then God has the right to remove that power from them in a moment, to bring the high and mighty to their knees and even to the dust of the ground. And do we not see a picture of that here in Joshua chapter 2, that these mighty men are now face down in the ground, no longer having any power, no longer having any authority, perhaps thinking, I do not even have the power to save myself, let alone anyone else. And this picture here should be a picture to all leaders and all rulers, be it the most mighty rulers of this earth, of this day, of the most powerful countries in the world, down to the local leaders and authorities and the local governments. And this would even extend to authority and power given to leaders within the church and also even leaders within the home. We need to be reminded that all authority comes from God. Therefore, all authority should be used for God, for His honor and for His glory. 
Otherwise, one will face the consequences like these mighty kings do here in Joshua chapter 10. Because there's ultimately only one that is high and mighty. And that is God himself. Our mother of our Lord, Mary in her Magnificat, says this in Luke chapter 1. She says, he is, speaking of God, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Again there, we see that picture of God bringing down to nothing those that seemingly are mighty, those that seemingly have all power and all authority that sit on thrones. Mary is reminding all of us that it is ultimately God that sits on the ultimate throne. And he will lift up the humble and bring down the proud. And these five kings are representational of all that set themselves up against God and against the Christ who sits upon the throne. Again, Psalm chapter 2 speaks of this so beautifully. When it says, the kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. But it goes on to say, he, that is God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits in the heavens, laugh. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. So then it concludes this way. Now therefore, O king, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are those who take refuge in him. You hear there in Psalm chapter 2, the foolishness of kings that would set themselves up in opposition to God and against his Christ, against his anointed one. And so therefore the call goes out around the world to, to kiss the sun, to, to bow down, to submit to this greater authority, this greater Lord, this true king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is not a man of blood or of vengeance but one that gives mercy and grace to all that turn to him, that bow down and acknowledge him. For all that do will have peace, but those that do not will be brought to justice. Because God will not continue to strive with them forever. And there will be no place for those that do to hide or protect themselves on that day. And again, as we look at Joshua chapter 10, if these five kings could not protect themselves, if they could not defend themselves, if they could not hide themselves against the lesser Joshua, how much more will the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that is all-powerful, that is all-knowing, will seek them out, will find them out. 
And on that day, that day will be a day of destruction and of judgment. Again, listen to Revelation chapter 6. It says this, that the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Does that sound familiar? Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Again, in that is a picture of the kings of the earth and all the way down to those that are low and of nothing, of slaves. If they do not come to the acknowledgement of this greater lamb, this greater one that sits on the throne, then they will not hide from the wrath to come. And so this picture here, this picture here of the kings of Canaan is a picture even of a greater status. That of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he will do to the greatest enemy that has set himself up in opposition to God. And that great enemy, as we know, is Satan himself. And that is what we read of in the first utterance of the gospel in the scriptures. As we read in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the the creation and then chapter 3, the fall, we read there in the middle of chapter 3. As God brings about the curses, he says this to the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is a picture of what we see taking place here. As Joshua puts his feet on the neck of the enemies, so the Lord Jesus Christ puts his foot on the head of the great serpents. Satan himself, bringing his power and reign to an end and bringing him to justice and ruin. And therefore, one day there will be no other reign, no other rule, but there will only be peace in the land because there is nothing in opposition to Christ and his authority and of his kingdom. Well, with that picture in mind then, we need to also Second, then, take up arms. And before anyone thinks that I am advocating here taking up literal arms and taking conquest, let me make myself abundantly clear that this command that was given to Joshua and to the Israelites was for a specific time and place. It was to establish the people of God as a nation. That the people of God... Here, we're given the the power to do this, to not only execute judgment upon the wicked, but to establish themselves as a peaceful nation in this particular land. This was the land, as you remember, that was given to the people of God way back in the time of Abraham. When God says to Abram, this is the land in which your descendants will dwell. Well, the people of God now in the new covenant, are no longer a nation, at least not a geographical nation. 
we are of all nations and we are in all nations. And that is how it's supposed to be. The nation of Israel was established to bring about Christ. But now that Christ has come, Christ's kingdom is not an earthly one as we see here in the time of the Old Testament with the Israelites. But we have a spiritual kingdom. That is what Christ said again and again. And so any idea now of taking up physical conquest in the name of Christ is an abomination. That is why the the crusades that took place were political and and not spiritual. Even though they used the, the name of Christ to justify them. We would quickly condemn that action and say that that is repulsive to us. And that is people that do not understand the scriptures. That are mixing the old covenant from the new covenants. But that doesn't mean that as we read this that there are no lessons here for us. No, there are lessons here. Rich lessons. Wonderful lessons. And the lesson that we need to learn from this passage is that we too are to be engaged in a battle. Even in a war. That we are in a fight. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, as he writes his last epistle, probably writing that just days before he dies, he writes this, that I have fought the good fight. Notice Paul is not talking about a physical battle like Joshua is engaged here in Joshua 10. But nonetheless, he calls it a battle. He calls it a fight. He calls it a war. In several different passages. But it's against a different foe, is it not? It's not an earthly one. As he says in Ephesians chapter 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of the age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly place. And so let us not think that our enemies are our neighbors or our co-workers or our civil rulers or that person that cuts us off in traffic. No, our battle is against the unholy trinity, as I like to call it, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That is what we need to battle against. That is what our fight is supposed to take place. That is the, the war that we are engaging in. And there's plenty for us to engage in, is there not? Just take, for example, the flesh. As we heard this morning, we need to consider ourselves dead in Christ, but risen in the newness of life. And Paul says there in Romans chapter 6, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies To make you obey its passions. Notice there's two parts there. He says that because you are in Christ there is a new reality. That you are dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. But then he doesn't say well you don't have to do anything. Because that reality is always there. No he goes on to say that we need to battle and fight. That we are to not allow that sin to reign in our mortal bodies. And that is exactly what we see here in Joshua chapter 10. 
in verse 19, as Joshua um, says to the people, he says, do not allow these enemies to enter into their cities, but to pursue them and attack them. Why is that? For the Lord your God has given them into your hands. Notice that. God has given them into your hands, but because God has given them into your hands, He does not say, well, then just sit back and watch God do it all. No, He says to pursue. And we're to pursue in the light of that promise given. And the same is true for us. Yes, we're dead to sins. That is the spiritual reality. But because we are dead to sins, then we need to wrestle and fight. And so, John Owen so aptly put it, we need to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's that continued battle in our life. Again, Peter speaks this way. The passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. And so we need to wage that war. Lest we succumb to it. We must fight. We must battle. We must take up arms. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. Taking on the the spiritual armor that is ours in Christ. It is a spiritual armor. It's not a physical one. It is the helmet of salvation. It's the breastplate of righteousness. It's the feet girded with the gospel. It's all of these aspects of the the spiritual nature taking all those things upon us. Then we're ready to engage in this battle against this war with the strength of the Lord helping us. And that may sound intimidating and daunting. In some ways it is. But let me conclude with our third point tonight that there is comfort and hope in the conflict. Look back at chapter 10 with me. Joshua has his leaders to come and put their foot on the necks of their enemies. Why? Is it to rub it in? Is it to show their dominance? No, it's so that they would be encouraged. He says there in verse 25, Do not be afraid or dismayed, but be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Notice Joshua doesn't say, be strong and courageous because we're so much stronger and mightier than them and we're showing it to them by making them lick the dust. We'll defeat them in our power and our strength. No, Joshua says you need to be strong and courageous and encouraged because this is what the Lord will do. Notice he says that at the very end. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And how does Joshua know that? Well, it's the promise that has been reiterated again and again and again from the very opening verses of Joshua. And you might say, well, that's good and all for Joshua. But I don't have any promises like that given to me in my spiritual war and my spiritual battle. No, we do. 
As I mentioned before, in Ephesians chapter 6, we read there that our, our war is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. But before Paul says that, just one verse before that, he begins this way. In verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Does that sound familiar to you? That is the same promise that is given to Joshua and to his men. It's the same promise that is given to Paul. And it's the same promise that Paul passes on to those that he is writing. And through the Holy Spirit, that is the same promise that is passed upon you this night. Paul is just merely reiterating the promise that is given throughout all of the scriptures. The Israelites were woefully inadequate and insufficient to do this task that they were called to do. But they were to be encouraged because the Lord was doing it through them. Does that sound familiar? It should. In the same way, we are woefully inadequate and insufficient to live the Christian life, to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. We would fail miserably if it was done on our own. And we would surely have no hope. Except we are not to do it on our own. No, we are to do it through the strength and the power that the Lord provides. It's in His power. It's in His might. And so those times when all of us become weak and weary and tired, those are the times that we need to more fully rely upon the strength of the Lord. As the Lord said to Paul, my grace is made sufficient in your weakness. Not in your strength, but in your weakness. And so it's in those times when we think that we'll never win, and we'll never beat that battle, that we'll never be able to fight that fight, that we're called to fight, that We'll never gain victory over that particular sin that we battle with every day. Or when the world looks dark and gloomy and we only see wickedness and corruption all around us. We need to be reminded of the promises of God. That God is still upon His throne. He still reigns. He has demonstrated again and again His dominance over his enemies. And in fact, we have better promises than Joshua did in the Israelites. Yes, they were given wonderful promises of being strong and courageous and to engage in these wars. And as they engaged in them, they saw the Lord's strength and might. That, as it says at the very end of this passage, that the Lord indeed fought for Israel. But do we not have a better picture than even that? We have the sign of the ultimate victory over Satan and death itself. And that picture is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and also his resurrection on that glorious Easter morning. And that is what we celebrate every Sunday, but especially this week. As this holy week approaches So we think of the crucifixion and death and burial and resurrection of Christ. We should be encouraged. And so this night, if you are discouraged, don't be. 
God will win and has already won the battle. And one day he will bring all things together in him. Bring together all things that are even not at this time. Again, Ephesians chapter 1, that same book that at the very end Paul talks about engaging in this spiritual battle. At the very first, on the onset, as he writes that letter, he begins this way, that we're to be strong in the Lord and His might because He is working out all things according to His purpose, which He has set forth in Christ Jesus as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, he has everything sovereignly under his control. Everything is working according to his purpose. Everything in heaven, as well as everything on earth, which includes you and me, which includes every detail of our lives. So these things that we worry about and become anxious with or we struggle with, In the light of eternity, they're merely a blip on the screen. God will conquer his and our enemies. And we can praise God this night that we who were once enemies have been brought near by the blood of Christ Jesus. So as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of God. Of his might. With that promise in mind, let us go to him now in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you give us the strength to endure. And Lord, the times that we are weak and weary, that we would truly look to you and know that in you we have all that we need, that you are completely sufficient. And so, Lord, we pray that we would cast our anxieties, our worries, our burdens, our struggles upon you. And Lord, that we continue to engage in the fight that you have given us to fight until you would take us home, until we would have ultimate peace and rest with you. Lord, we pray that you would enable us, that you'd help us, that you would abide with us. For we pray this in Christ Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.